Is this, are we keeping this live? Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm back, I got a beer. Let's go. <laughs> Account, what's your answer to the same question? Oh, that's, that's tough. I love everything right now. <laughs> um, he okay. just wants to buy. <laughs> Welcome to the Financial Independence Garage, where we give you the tools to repair your finances and unfold the roadmap to financial independence. Uh, not much map using these days. I'm getting three months to the gallon right now. How about you guys? Three months to the gallon. Yeah, that sounds about right. <laughs> yeah. So that's the money mechanic with you as usual. And my good friends are with me. I am the accountant. I'm the economist. And we've got a fourth and a special guest with us tonight to join the conversation. And is Money Master, Jordan Mass from his blog, uh, that hopefully some people have read. I've been following it for quite a while. He's got a uh, good dialogue going on over there as a dividend investor, and uh, he writes some good articles, and he also does some awesome booze reviews. So there's that too, and that uh, I enjoy both of his writings here. So welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Yeah, pleasure. So tonight, we're just going to have our usual kind of banter, as we always do. We're here <laughs> Friday night, and we all wanted, we figured we better have a drink together, and I still have a Winnipeg beer, and uh, you know, I figured since it got sent to me, I may as well crack into it, because the chances of me giving one to the accountant and the economist are pretty slim at this point. If you crack into this one, it's zero, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I still actually have two more. Okay. But, uh, this one's from uh, Sucram's Brewing. So Sucram's Brewing is in Winnipeg, and this is the cult classic Pilsner that I'm having tonight. What did you guys bring along to drink? I've got with me a Jagged Face IPA from Aerosmith Brewing in Parksville, British Columbia. Nice. I uh, I went to the bourbon cabinet and got uh, the Wild Turkey Revival. Oh, I don't nice. think I've had that one. Yeah, it's delicious. You sh- probably shouldn't buy anything else. The Wild Turkey's nice, yeah. Jordan, what you got? I've got a Winnipeg beer also, uh, the Nonsuch Baltic Porter. And, oh, yeah. Uh, I just opened one of my reserve bottles of Blanton's and poured myself uh, a little bit of Blanton's single barrel as well. Very nice. Oh, nice. The Blanton's is nice. Have you had the wild turkey that the economist is having? Uh, I have not had the revival. I've got an open bottle of the 101 right now, which I'm a pretty big fan of as well. Okay. Yeah, wild turkey's delicious. The 101 is delicious. I had a bottle of that a little while ago, and it did not last long. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I read somewhere on Jordan's blog that, um, what was it? You Once you've got a bottle open, you tend to go through it and enjoy it and do your reviews of it and before you move on to the next one so you can uh, appreciate it. Yeah, I've got a rule. I keep no more than 12 bourbons open at a time. So, <laughs> <laughs> Well, I don't think I have 12 bourbons on the shelf anymore, but I think my rule is that each one was always open at some point. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, The Economist just moved, so he thinned out his uh, collection a little bit, and he was very kind and generous to drop me off a Eagle Rare that's uh, sitting upstairs in hiding, hiding it from my wife. It's yes, a good one. You know, I figured I'd bring the bottle now so I can drink it when I'm over there. <laughs> That's fair. Yeah, there's something you for assume you when you get it's going to last till the next time you're over there. Well, I'm going to drink happening. whatever he has when I'm over there. So, <laughs> right on. So everyone's locked in as usual. Here we are on a Friday night, locked in doing another Zoom chat. So, Jordan, you mentioned you got a whole bunch of uh, bourbon bottles there. Have you ever looked into doing any kind of alternative investments from a alcohol, booze, spirits point of view? I know there are some online platforms now for for spirits and for wines. Have you ever looked into that? Not really too seriously. I mean, in Manitoba specifically, it's basically illegal to get booze shipped here or to sell here unless you're using like a broker or something. So 
and for me, it's it's more just about the the enjoyment of the of the the bottle. That said, I do have a few that uh, that are on my shelf right now that are probably worth ten to twelve times what I paid for them. <laughs> but I still plan on drinking them, not reselling them. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. <laughs> nice. Yeah, I think uh, I wouldn't I I wouldn't have a problem investing in booze in that sense. But I think it would have to be something that's brokered, so you don't have to handle it yourself. I think that's yeah, exactly. a safer way, right? And and I think some of those platforms are like that now. Yeah. Especially for us in Canada, I think it's every province it makes it nearly impossible to to resell liquor. Yeah, for sure, I I did actually meet a guy who put himself through law school reselling bottles of Pappy Van Winkle, though. <laughs> yeah. Oh no way! That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. That's a that's a pretty decent bourbon as well. So as far as uh, investing goes, we're some of us we're pretty similar in our approaches here amongst the four of us, and. I recently have been going through a little bit of a um, analysis of my own portfolio since we've had sort of nothing but time at home and I've been doing some reading and, and learning from talking to other people. And I definitely will be the first to admit that I have too much home bias. And part of that is because I started off, you know, as everybody, a little inexperienced at the beginning and overloaded myself with Canadian dividend socks. And now it's sort of it's backpedaling a bit. Jordan, you're pretty good at giving your updates of your portfolios and stuff like that online. How do you plan your portfolio? How do you work towards getting the allocation that you want? Uh, yeah. So for me, I guess it's... So about two years ago, I did a, a big deep dive post into my portfolio. And I noticed that I had about 70% of all my holdings were, due, were Canadian holdings. Um, and it really stemmed from starting at the age of, you know, 18, 19 in mutual funds through the bank that, you know, they're going to sell you whatever. And it's usually a very Canadian focused mutual fund. So for the probably first five years of investing, I was just pouring money into this Canadian dividend fund, um, which has done well for me. I have no no problem with it. But as I got older and started, uh, you know, learning a little bit more about uh, diversification, um, <laughs> I started uh, realizing that okay, I should probably should probably focus on this. So, two years ago, it was at seventy percent Canadian buy, home bias. Um, last year, about a year after I did that original post, it had dropped to I think it was about sixty percent. And I just checked right before coming on here, and, and I'm about fifty fifty now. So it is going down, um, not as fast as I'd like, but a big part of that is because I'm reinvesting um, almost four hundred dollars a month of that Canadian. Uh, dividend fund every month, right? So, right. Yeah, uh, which I mean, it's a it's a it's an okay problem to have, I guess. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, none of these are bad problems to have, but I I feel for me personally is I I kind of got caught off guard by you know keeping dumping money in but not properly using the allocation, and it was kind of like, oh, it's in the TFSA. I'd like to hold a dividend stock in there, so I'm buying that. And uh, what do you guys think, accountant economists? How do you try and keep your balance is it just on new cash going in or have you are you going to have a look and say i need to make a, like a wholesale adjustment for me it, it it's 100% new new cash you know i buy i'm actually i i've nailed where i want to be which is sweet right um on. I just haven't got rid of your squeaky chair yet. I'm selling you some WD40. Oh yeah, I forgot that. <laughs> um, so yeah, i just uh, buy whatever i need to uh, as the markets change and keep it around where I want to be. And where, where, like, where do you want to be? What's uh, uh, 25% Canadian is what I've targeted. Okay. So what's your target for that, Jordan? I mean, I don't have a set number. I, I think I'm trying to aim to get down to about 35 probably. Um, 35. But, mm, yeah. 
Yeah, that seems reasonable. Um, well, I've found a solution to the problem is I just open a new TFSA for my wife and I just model everything in there. So that portfolio is perfectly allocated. And then the rest of my life is way too heavy in real estate. <laughs> well, real estate and Canadian dividends. Well, yes, both of yes. those. But so what's your target allocation for Canadian exposure? Do you have one? In uh, I'm trying to be around 25, 30. Now, I know those numbers are pretty normal. And I think if you you know read Canadian Cash Player blog or listen to um, Rational Mind or things like that, everyone's kind of in that 20 to 30 area for Canadian. And the thing that I'm thinking about and th- what got me on this the whole thing recently was um, I had a chat with Ed Rempel from Unconventional Wisdom, and he provided us a model that showed a total return in comparison to uh, dividend investing and in comparison to traditional sort of couch potato models, which are like 80-20. So regardless of the bond component that is a problem, um, well, I shouldn't say problem, but it is what it is in the portfolio. (laughs) (laughs) We can get into that if we want. But the total return outperformed, and that's because of its proportional weighting to global allocations, which in Canada, we it's kind of accepted around 3 or 4% of the global market. What do you mean by total return? Like basing a portfolio that would be proportionally accurate to um, Canadian, US, international emerging. Oh, in terms of like GDP output sort of thing? Yeah, basically percentage right. of the market. Or if you, you know, like the popular one in the States is everybody likes VT, right? It's just the total market index. So just, I'm going to go at you a bit here. Yeah, yeah. Totally. When I hear total return, I think your return after uh, equity increases and dividends. Yes. Nothing to do with... Uh, no, we're counting, ev- yeah. we're counting everything in there. But I, I guess I'm just, I've gotten curious myself here is going, why, why is the 25% accepted in Canada as our home bias? Jordan, instead do you have a like thought 2%? on that? It was instead of like 4%, yeah. Yeah, uh, yeah I don't know what, like the, the psychology behind it. Um, for me, I guess it's in my TFSA, I'm obviously going to use, use it for Canadian stocks um, due to like withholding taxes and that kind of stuff. I think it's just you, you, and again, I can only speak for myself, but you kind of invest in what you know, what you understand. So when I'm, in, when I'm investing in individual stocks, that's what, I, what, that's what I use my TFSA for. I feel more, more comfortable with that. Whereas with my RSP, that's kind of where I just dump my, I use a, like a global ETF and don't have to worry about it. Um, I don't know enough about, you know, emerging market stocks or stocks in China or Japan. I, and I don't have the time to research them. So um, I'm fine with using yeah. fund for that. Go ahead, account. You want to say something? Well, I was going to say just that is that like you got to have at least if you're investing in individual stocks, you have to have some knowledge of the industries and like how am I going to know what some you know European manufacturing company is? I I don't know. Right. Well, my comment on that was, and and I totally agree with you when it comes to individual stocks, especially if you're trying to develop a um, a dividend income and to to be used later on. And, and I agree with that. I'm the same way as in my TFSA. It's like of course I'm trying to get some good high quality Canadian dividend stocks with increasing dividends that are, you know, stable blue chip companies, what we've kind of talked a little bit about on the show before, but really popular for a lot of the FI movement is Figo or something like VEQT, which is these, the the all in one indexes. And those are all, those are weighted generally around 25, 30% Canadian. Right. So if people are holding those, once it gets up to like, I saw, and uh, Jordan, you're holding XAW, and that's actually what I'm looking to move more into because it's yep. it's an ex-Canada fund. So for the listeners, what that means is that it is 
globally represented, but it excludes all Canadian holdings so that we, we don't get more bias in that holding. Whereas if I hold VEQT, I get a similar uh, group of holdings, but I get way more Canadian exposure. Yeah, and that's the that's the full reason I bought it is I just I didn't want any overlap. I already basically owned all the Canadian holdings in in my uh, dividend fund. So, so are you using that now as 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 you add money? Is that how you're trying to help rebalance that? Yeah, although yeah, it is. Um, another another thing that uh, one of you guys brought up earlier was uh, you open an account for your wife, uh, which I, and is another important thing I think is to talk about not just. Uh, global diversification, but also account allocation, uh, like tax-free accounts versus. um, So that's another thing I've kind of been focusing on as well, trying to get, I basically realized that my RSP was getting, I don't want to say too big because you can never have too much money, but um, it it didn't make sense to keep putting money into mine. So I opened a disposal RSP, which is now going all into US equities, um, as well as a disposal TFSA um, or or a TFSA for my wife, things like that, just to make sure that, uh, you know, looking at things from every angle. So are you doing individual U.S. equities within the RRSP? Uh, no, not yet. There's a couple that I looked at, but uh, right now it's pretty much all um, XA, XAW. And I own, I think, three Canadian stocks in my RSP as well right now. If we want to, I, I agree with you. I like the idea of using XAW. It's hard to, I, I struggle with that a little bit because I go, at what point do I need to, and this is the problem, get more complicated and break that out into some individual ETFs or even use US listed ETFs instead of the drag that I get from that whole one ETF? Or do we just decide that, hey, it's way easier. I'm okay paying the price for just holding XAW. Jordan, what are your thoughts on making it more life more complicated than it already is for investing? I mean, yeah, when you say paying the price, are you talking about the like potential uh, less gains you would get by holding it versus individual stocks? Or are you talking about the actual like MER? Um, no, well, not even the MER. I was just thinking more of um, withholding taxes that we can't um, shelter ourselves from in our RSP by using that fund because it's it's baked into the cost into the fund. Yeah, I mean, I, like I only hold XAW in my in my RSP. Um, I I don't really plan on holding any any individual stocks. I, I'm fine with the the simplicity of it. Um, like I said earlier, I don't have any. Um, ambition or time to, to even think about researching any further so yeah um, i think i think xaw if i recall is it holds something like eight thousand stocks like maybe yeah. even more um so i'm i'm completely confident that uh, i'm well enough diversified and, and as long as my if xaw can basically become you know 70 percent of my total portfolio then i and the rest can i can kind of do my own canadian stocks that's kind of my my end goal it really is a pretty cheap way to di- diversify i mean maybe it costs yeah. a little more in dollars but it you get it back in the time you don't spend on it yeah that's that's a pretty fair comment there now i'm i'm totally guilty of forever making my portfolio too complicated i started off with my quest trade yes. and it was nice and simple i was like okay i'll have four etfs right the the usual ones that everybody picks the canadian the s&p the international and the emerging and now all of a sudden i've got vqt showing up in there i've got vgro showing up in there i'm going why am i making this too complicated for myself <laughs> and that's kind of got what we got all thinking about this and I'm going why aren't i just holding I'm, I'm holding dividend stocks canadian and and hold xaw that pretty much makes it almost foolproof for me right and i feel like if you can have one fund that basically covers everything it takes the emotion out of uh, yeah. trying to find and you know you see so many people just shoot themselves in the foot switching stocks buying selling buying 
I mean, as long as you're, you have the same goal and you're in it for the long haul, find a fund you like that has low fees and uh, just stick with it. I think that's a great point because there's nothing that'll discourage someone more than picking a great stock and just see it plummet, especially in uh, times like now when the market's... The market is irrational? <laughs> yes. Well, I, I don't know yeah. that it is, but I, I guess it is. Yeah. yeah. Well, what, what was I your... Mean, the, the, your the other thing Stop too. Stop talking. <laughs> Raise your hand. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Go yeah. Go ahead, account. Uh, I was just going to say the other thing too is that I mean, most of us acknowledge that most of our funds should just be in index funds, not in individual stocks. And being in Canada, you get the best tax benefit from investing in individual Canadian stocks. I mean. Assuming you're non-registered, if you have Canadian dividend-paying stocks that are paying eligible dividends, that's the most tax-efficient thing. So why wouldn't you have all of your other holdings in an index fund and only dabble in the Canadian allocation? Now, if you have a Canadian uh, dividend index fund, you'll still get the preferential tax treatment, Yes. Uh, Yeah, no, absolutely. But... If you're dabbling in individual international or U.S. stocks, you don't get your preferential treatment, right? So why not just pay a low MER and keep it simple? I I think I agree with Jordan on that. Like I think why not just have XAW and call it a day, and you can do your research on your individual stuff for in Canada. Do you want to speak to that, Jordan? Oh yeah, I mean he agrees with me, so there's not much of a back and forth. But, uh, <laughs> My work I mean, here is done. <laughs> that's like. Another short episode, boys. Well done. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, like, I guess the only thing I would say is if uh, I don't want to discourage you, if you have the time or the ambition and you, and you think you can or you can outperform, you know, XAW, by all means, I just think on average or the average person will not. So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, and I think, you know, the economist made a good point, too, is, you know, take the um, or just having that one fund is just removes that psychology from it, especially in our volatile times like these. I was gonna, I was trying to refer earlier. What was that tweet that you had today, Jordan? Something about the irrational market. Oh yeah, no, yeah. Uh, I just said so. Are, are all the textbooks right now being updated to remove the efficient market hypothesis? Because <laughs> nothing makes sense right now. <laughs> it doesn't, does it? I mean, no. I guess if we just keep lowering rates and printing money, then it'll be all be okay. We'll kick this, kick the problem down the road a few years. You know so, what you're hearing a lot out there. This time's different. Yeah. What that it's always that every time this time's different. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, this is, this is my first experience because I was not living in Canada and had no money invested in 2008. So this is, this is a new time for me. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. It, it's interesting. Jordan, did you go through 07, 08? I mean, I did, but I mean, I probably had, you know, 5% of what I have invested now in the market. I was just kind of getting started. And, yeah. You and know. you're a young guy. You don't care. You yeah. I mean, and I wasn't nearly buck, right? uh, interested or following anything at the time. It was kind of just yeah. dumping every time I got paid some money would go into an RSP at the time or a mutual right. fund. Yeah. So do you still have the same mutual fund? I have one, I, although I did switch it to a Series D, uh, like the direct investing lower fee one. Right. Um, it's still fairly a fairly high fee. Um, most people in the in the finance community online would probably uh, scream if they if they saw saw the MAR <laughs> on it. But honestly, even after fees, this thing has it's like number one in its class. It beats the benchmark. It's I think it's got like a since I've been invested in it, like an average ten percent return Canadian dividend fund. Um, 
even after the fees, yeah, it's it's been really good to me. So now I'm just I'm just sticking with it. Right. Yeah. Uh, of course, probably a good time to drop in that uh, shows for entertainment purposes only, and we're not here to give any. <laughs> yeah, we're, <laughs> we're not selling investments. <laughs> yeah. We're talking about our personal portfolios, and uh, yeah, it's our opinions for sure. Hey, I wanted to pick your brain about one. I read your post last year about Go Easy. And I think yep. you bought a little bit more on that uh, recently, actually. And so for listeners that don't know what GoEasy is, it's basically, well, you might be able to sum it up better than I can, Jordan, but it's, it's, a, um, it's a lender, essentially. Um, yeah. A high-rate yeah. lender. Go ahead. I mean, you probably do it better than I can. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I mean, it started as, uh, I guess, Easy Financial as a uh, rent-to-own kind of uh, store. They're, I mean, you guys are from Canada. You probably have them, have seen them all over the place. Yeah, we um, have those. Yeah, and... It's uh, more recently moved to online, uh, I guess would be subprime short-term consumer lending. Uh, and they have, I, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but uh, yeah. the returns have been astronomical. Um, and yeah. I, th- I believe their uh, loan book is now over a billion dollars of outstanding. Wow. So my question about that, the reason that kind of perked my interest when I was looking through your blog recently was because of their business model, and the potential changes and fallout that we're looking ahead um, further, I, I noticed. I know they've dropped a lot in price, and they they look like a buy. But I'm not, you know, not suggesting that. But long term, do you think their business model still makes sense in the potential future of our, uh, the debt situation and economy? For sure. I mean, uh, the only—I don't want to say the only. I, I'm not concerned about COVID nineteen um, impacting their long term. Um, business, I, obviously, they're gonna they're gonna see a hit. Um, that said, uh, once it is all recovered, I think there's gonna be a huge demand for the product. To yeah. me, the bigger concern with their business model would just be regulation. Um, if governments come in and say, you know what, instead of being able to charge fifteen fifteen dollars per hundred in this province, you can only charge ten. Uh, that that'll be the bigger concern for sure for their business model. Yeah, it's just interesting. I've been hearing quite a lot about the whole sort of private lending space when we, whether it comes to um, mortgage investment corporations or private second mortgage lending. And, and GoEasy is a publicly traded company, obviously, that has basically built that as their business model is, I don't want to call it high risk lending, but it's outside the normal channels for people. Yeah, right. But I mean, if we have a big credit crunch and it becomes more risky to lend, even our basic lenders, our big banks are going to start demanding more because loans are higher risk, which means technically those higher risk loans, then the rates on those should also go up. Well, they're at the ceiling. Yeah, that's, that's the thing. They, can, they can't ceiling. really raise raise the rates. Yeah, I guess that's true. Yeah, yeah, they're pretty high for sure. Now, do you have any uh, moral issues with investing in a company like that? <laughs> so it's, it's funny you say that. I actually, <laughs> during, during 2008, 2009, um, I actually worked for, and this is why I'm, I'm not concerned with their model. Um, so I actually worked for like a extremely large um, subprime lender um, during 2008, 2009, when that, all that was going on. And, you know, everyone was, was kind of freaking out then at the time too. And the, the following uh, year, two years were, were the most profitable they, you know, the business ever yeah. was. Um, so yeah, I, I honestly, you know, even having worked there for a very long time, um, was conflicted still am, but I mean, I, I kind of wrote about this a little while ago, um, and t- debated this with people like, this is why I'm a huge fan of, of things like universal basic income, because I, I would gladly and much rather, um, work a less paying job that uh, I felt good about or was passionate about. Uh, unfortunately, yeah, a lot right. of a lot of jobs that uh, you know 
offer bigger salaries or better salaries sometimes aren't aren't in industries that you maybe uh, are passionate about or aren't necessarily doing society a, a service. And I'll take you down the rabbit hole on that because you just mentioned it. Do you not think that a universal basic income would be way easier than the 9,000 yes, yes. different programs that the yes. government just rolled out? Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, would we not be a lot better off just being like, hey, if we ever wanted a test period for universal basic income, now's the time. Oh, Let's do it. Me, I've, I've had this discussion with pretty much all my friends recently. <laughs> yes, a thousand percent. There, I'm catching him just as he's taking a sip of beer. That's perfect. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I was going to say, you know, um, we're all kind of working on our path towards financial independence. And one of the goals for myself is to be able to pivot in my career and go work for a less paying job that I, I don't want to say enjoy more, but that perhaps has more fulfillment for, you, for me. Um, you're, we're all similar age group here. Jordan, are you looking to pivot out of your current career down the road at some point sooner than like sort of traditional age? Or is it is the high, high income, you stick with that for as long as you can? Because as much as I agree, I think universal based in- income would be great. And that would allow a lot of people to follow their passions. Uh, I just don't see it happening right away. Yeah, I don't see it happening either. Oh. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, as far as pivoting out of my current career, I mean, like I worked for the same company for, and I mean, I'm not a very old guy, but I were, I was there for about just under 16 years. Um, and I, I just recently, uh, I was in December was laid off and just started a new job. So, yeah. um, yeah, so I have no, no plans right now to, to pivot out of that. Um, obviously my, my end goal is to retire early or, uh, you know, not work for someone at yeah. a earlier age than most, I guess. But, um. So now your dividend income, uh, you posted your updates on your blog there, and you've got an awesome goal for this year. It's pretty impressive. Uh, you're hoping to hit 12 grand, which uh, for me is also a goal. That's kind of a super nice average round number of a grand a month. It feels pretty good to hit that milestone. I know this uh, market setback is probably going to hurt a little bit with some div cuts. I actually, I, yeah, I, I actually did pass that goal Um and then it just got slashed back after I think three different companies <laughs> cut the dividends. So. Yeah. So you were projected to meet. I was projected it to be over, and now I think I'm back down to like eleven five hundred or something. Yeah, but think of all the deals you're going to get to get you back over. Exactly. Yeah, and how much you're dripping right now for the, all those uh, drips that you yeah, got. Yeah, it's so. crazy. Um, so the question I was kind of going with on that theme was, you know, in in ten or fifteen years from now you've got that dividend income spread around obviously between, you know, RSPs, TFSA, and probably non-registered by then if we start running out of room. Is that, is that kind of your plan to start using that, living off that as much as possible and, and less from portfolio drawdown? Yeah. I mean, I, if I'm being completely honest, barring some uh, huge boost in income or lottery windfall, I don't, <laughs> I don't know if I'll ever even have the need for non-registered um accounts i think between my wife's gfsa wife's rsp my rsp my tfsa should be more than enough i i think if, if at that time um you know we've maxed everything out um it would come down to okay is, can we throw extra money on the house if the house isn't paid off by then or right or whatever yeah. um yeah, I don't. I don't know if I'll if I'll ever get into non-registered accounts unless it's uh, unless things are looking really good. <laughs> so you're not you're not planning your uh, dividend payment exit strategy just yet. You don't have to not worry yet. about that. <laughs> no. <laughs> right well, on. How about how about uh, your RSP drawdown strategy? Yeah, I mean, I, I I guess I I should think about it a little more. I'm not as young as I like to think I am, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, the the, the 
the most I've thought about it really is just over the last, I guess it's last two years now, realizing that, you know, even if I never contributed another penny to my own RSP um, and looking at just historical returns, yeah, I think it would be like almost $3 million by the time I'm 65. Right. Um, so that's, that's yeah. when I, that's when I was like, okay, this is ridiculous. So I basically stopped contributing to my own RSP, open a disposal RSP, and now I'm just trying to put as much into my wife's. I right. figure it makes more sense to have two, uh, you know, say two, $1 million, um, <laughs> yeah. RSVs and yeah. And I mean, I don't even think we'll, we'll get to that. Cause it's, do you think when you're drawing down your RSP, you might end up with extra cash that you have to invest in the non-registered account or is it all going to be living expenses? Um, pro- if I'm being honest, I haven't thought that far ahead. Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm not as, uh, I'm not as intense as, as most of the, uh, financial, uh, financial and early, uh, financial defense retire early people. Well, and these I, are I, like pretty- to sp- I like to spend money now too and enjoy life. So yeah. Yeah. yeah I agreed. Yeah. And we're all on I the mean, same page. what a horrible problem to have. I've got a bunch of money in an RSP that I need to deal with. Like not, not the end of the world. Yeah. I think we've all been pretty clear on the show before that we're not the uh, ultra frugal side of the FI movement. Um, yeah. We, the the objective at the end of the day, right, is um, we're drinking two hundred dollar bottles of whiskey. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> unless you you make and invest the difference, right? Isn't that basic? Keep it simple. You yep. mean invest the difference in whiskey, right? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Well, hey, uh, maybe we'll have some in the show notes of how people can. Uh, get invested in in fine wines and whiskeys because historically their returns are quite good tech technically from what i've read but of course that may just be the sales pitch because it's pretty typical right everything's a good return so the uh the cult classic pilsner i had was is quite good actually i quite liked it i'm not a huge pilsner fan but i don't mind one once in a while it says the cult classic is a pale golden lager full of crisp hops and bready malts the zesty spice and floral notes from the hops balance the malt sweetness before this pilsner's crisp finish so there you go thanks sucrams brewing from winnipeg i'm from winnipeg and i've never actually had that beer there you go, there you go. how's the the baltic porter that you're drinking Jordan? it's it's it, it's probably my number one uh, favorite local beer right now i would say oh, yeah. um, do you have a blurb on the did you have a can or is that from a growl or something uh, I do have a can somewhere over here, but I've, I've moved over to the couch. and I, Yeah, I, I saw him it throw is. it behind the couch. <laughs> <laughs> Fire like, sale behind It's you. like yeah. the FI garage. I got to clean up the cans after every recording session. The mopping too must get pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> so you write some interesting articles on your blog there, and you kind of walk through how you've done the analysis of certain Canadian dividend stocks before you purchase them, some of your due diligence. You just sort of run it through for sort of a high level for our listeners of how you go about looking at all these choices that we have and, and trying to drill down something that you think is going to a good fit for your portfolio. Sure. It, um, I guess it usually starts one of two ways. The first being it's a company or industry that I'm very familiar with. and um, I kind of zero in on something that way. Um, so for example, go easy. That was, uh, you know, I'd worked in the industry for uh, over a decade. Uh, yeah. I was very familiar with it, but um, that's, that's not the most common. The most common way is actually the, there is the, I believe it's the Canadian dividend all-star list. I'm sure most of you are, are familiar with it. Yeah. Um, and basically I download it every month and I kind of set up my own stock screener based on that list, looking at things like the, I'm very old school, so I, I basically pull it up in an Excel sheet and use different color colors as a, as a highlighter. So I'll look at things like, uh, you know, price earning ratio, um, earnings per share if it's gone up or down over the last twelve months, 
payout ratio uh, for the previous 12 versus the prediction for the next 12? Is that is it looking better or worse? And then kind of, uh, I have like, you know, 10 different metrics that I look at. I highlight them all in either red or green. And then I, I uh, do a count and see, okay, here's the, here's 10 stocks that are, that are, uh, you know, all have eight different indicators that I like that are looking good. And then I'll kind of narrow it down to those eight stocks and then I'll start going to each one's, you know, financials and digging a little bit deeper at that point. Um, so that's kind of usually how I get started. Right. So it's a bit well, for, what I just want to jump in and say, uh, good thing we don't have old listeners or else they might be worried about you saying Excel is old school. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Well, I was going to say, I use, um, for my TFSA where I do hold dividend stocks, I use um, TD uh, Web Broker. And they do have a, a fairly good screener in there. And for people that don't have experience with this to sort of break it out on a spreadsheet or things like that. I don't know if Questrade must do screeners as well, but I haven't looked at those ones. But the TD one, you can put in these metrics that Jordan's mentioning here, whether it's the price to earnings or it's the dividend yield or that, and, and you can build yourself out a screener. So anybody that's interested in, in starting in, in dividend investing should definitely learn how to use those tools and, and like Jordan brought up, understand which metrics to uh, model out. I think just one thing that I, I just want to get across to anyone that is uh, getting into investing, especially in dividends, is the biggest thing that I see people do all the time, and it almost always bites them in the ass, is don't chase yield. Just because a stock yes. has a high yield does not mean it's a good stock. Just because it'll pay you more income this one month, like just it's not important, okay? Just total return. Look at total returns, okay? All I looked for when I was 20 was yield and I got burned so bad repeatedly. Like it took me a long time to learn that lesson. Do you still have those stocks though, or did you sell? No, I finally burned through most of them. Oh, you, you're supposed to hold for the long term. I I understand <laughs> that, but they were garbage. I, I disagree. I think you talked me into uh, buying um, Bancorp at one point and I still regret chasing that yield. <laughs> That was a really stupid buy. You are yeah. correct. Yeah. <laughs> we talked about averaging down on that one recently, and we both were like, I don't think that's a good idea right Still now. Still don't like it. <laughs> but th- having said that, there's some nice yields right now that probably are attached to good companies. For sure. Yeah. And I guess, you know, I haven't, I've had a couple dividend cuts in the, in the last month. Uh, Jordan, I think you mentioned a couple on your blog recently as well. And I think we all kind of have to expect that in this environment for a little while moving forward. Hopefully those are, you know, we've, we've probably hopefully chosen wisely with the companies and that their business model is still viable. And then once things get settled down again, they'll reinstate the dividends and off we go. Right. That's kind of our, the hope, right? I take it for sure. And I mean, that's, that's sometimes too, where in a normal environment, dividend yield is obviously something you want to look at and you don't want to go chase high yield. But in a global pandemic panic world, like just because something has a dip high dividend yield right now doesn't necessarily mean the dividend's unstable. It might just mean that the stock is severely undervalued. For sure. No, I mean, obviously everything right now is is a gong show, but I just think in general, people get fixated on the, the monthly sure. payment or... yeah. Yeah, yeah, I definitely agree with that. And and the thing too is I think a lot of people look at it and go, oh, it's a, it's a month. Which I've seen the comments before, right? It's like, oh, what are the best Canadian dividend monthly payer stocks, right? And it's like, well, what does it matter if it pays monthly or quarterly? You know, your ideally is you're averaging it out over the year anyway, and it do, it's not going to make a difference to your drip because that relative payout is going to be the same. The percentage at the end of the year of the yield is the same. 
Yeah. Well, and I mean, what, like, so I buy a 6% yield and I buy a 4% yield, but the 4% yield increases 10% every year. Like, I'd way rather have the 4% yield that's increasing than the 6% yield that's stagnant. I have a question. As a dividend investor, you're looking for value, aren't you? Uh, I'm looking for value, but I, I mean, at the end of the day, I'm looking for what will get me the greatest total return for the long run. I guess isn't, isn't that value? I mean, some, something something could be valued cheaply today or whatever. Right. You know, I guess it depends on your definition of value. I mean, yeah, yeah, um, yeah. Right. Yeah, that's kind of a, that's a tough question, isn't it? Because if you pick a, a really good dividend growth stock at the right price to earnings metric, then it's a good value buy, right? Right. But would you still, I guess maybe the question should be rephrased as uh, if you're looking at a Canadian bank stock and the price to earnings was over 20, technically by that metric, it's not value anymore. Do you still buy it because it's it's the good business to be in for the long term and it raises its dividend every year? That's Maybe is that how you phrase that question? Yeah. And that obviously depends on the industry and the like, yeah. That's really the only, well, it's the traditional measure of what's a value stock. Would you, as, are you agreeing with me there, economist? Or you? Yeah, I, I would say that it's the easiest metric. It's the obvious one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I just don't think you can you can value a you know a hyper growth company the same as you can value a blue chip company. You know what I mean? Like, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, we saw that with the whole weed bubble when price to earnings were just astronomical, like ridiculous. Yeah, so. I I did own a lot of weed stocks, but very early on. <laughs> Congratulations! Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> who's been buying some cruise ships? Me. <laughs> <laughs> Are you buying the one that's Dublin as hospitals, or or no? That's Carnival. Yeah, I own some Carnival now. <laughs> yeah, well, those are a bit of flyers, aren't they? <laughs> that was uh, definitely a. This will be fun. Let's see what happens. Do you want to say this is for entertainment purposes only again? <laughs> again, yeah. <laughs> that so, purchase is for entertainment purposes only. Well, that's the time when we need to understand the difference between investing and speculating. I used I used to do that quite a bit too, and I like with I mean with weed stocks. Obviously, I also bought National Bank of Greece way back in the day. Um, <laughs> oh, yeah. But uh, yeah, I think over the last probably three, four years, I've, I've moved on completely from speculating to just you know finding finding good value and trying to hold it for. I think we all slowly learn that lesson. <laughs> DIY, think we know more than we we should, and yep. are better at analysis than we think we are, or, yeah. or not as good as we think we are. Uh, Jordan, a quick question because you mentioned Algonquin, and that's one of my holdings as well. Do you hold that in on the U.S. side or the Canadian side? It's the it's the Canadian side, but it's paid in U.S. Like the dividends paid in U.S. dollars gets converted automatically and then uh, reinvested. Now, is that a, did you choose that just because of the account that you hold it in? Because I hold Algonquin in my RSP account, so I chose to hold it in U.S. dollars. Do you think that makes a difference? Yeah, I don't think it makes a difference. Mine mine's just happens to be through my TFSA. It's through RBC Direct Investing, and they just kind of handle it all. So they do the conversion and. The reinvesting. Yeah, there's quite a few stocks that trade on both indexes. You can buy them on the New York Stock Exchange or the Toronto Stock Exchange. And I don't really know the answer of, of whether you should hold it on one or the other. Uh, accountant, is there any tax implications if it wasn't in a registered account that might, you'd probably want to take into consideration? I mean, there's there's your withholding tax. And people will argue too on like, you've got currency risk and you can make all of those kind of arguments. But at the end of the day, like I always argue on the currency risk front, which is 
I'll argue these days bigger than a tax front because of the swings that we see in currency. But if you live in Canada and you're spending money in Canadian dollars, then like, do you really need to hedge for currency? Well, on a on an individual stock, don't they move? They move with the the currency anyway, really. Yeah. So, but I'm I'm talking about if you own the if you own the American stock and you're getting it paid in American dollars and it's an American count, and then you try to. Right. I've heard of people trying to time when they move the money to Canadian sure. exchange rates, and I mean you're essentially just going with another version of market timing at that point. Which really, come on. For me, I I want more U.S. dollars. The more U.S. dollars, the better. I mean, obviously that's to a point. Yeah. I know there's there's some people out there that have been arguing that you should be in US dollars for ages. Like I don't know if anybody listens to Money Talks, but it's uh Michael Campbell, the brother of the former premier of British Columbia, has a <laughs> radio show of uh about finances and whatnot, and he's been arguing that you should be in US dollars for ages. What's the basis on that? Just the basis on that when the whole global meltdown is going to happen, everybody's going to flee to U.S. currency as a stable backing and that it will make U.S. currency more valuable and it'll devalue currencies around the globe. But again, you're speculating when you start doing things like that. Yeah, that's And I also, in, in form of your tax question, like you never let the tax tail wag the dog. If Fair you enough. understand the reference, right? Like yeah. you make your investing decisions and then you make the best possible tax decision based on that, not the other yeah. way around. Fair Absolutely. enough. And speaking of that, we're all stuck at home. That's a great movie to rewatch. Remember that one with De Niro, Wag the Dog? I do not. <laughs> He's never seen it. There he you go. The reference, never seen it. You're welcome. I just, you've it's got a, a movie. It is a great movie. It is a good movie. Yeah. Yeah. Jordan, am I the only one, or have you seen not seen I, it? I have never seen it. <laughs> okay, thank you. The FI Garage comes through with one useful tidbit for the weekend. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so uh, how is your bourbon there, Economist? It is the most delicious thing <laughs> that you can buy in a bottle. I guess you'll have to uh, read Jordan's blog because he's a little more detailed on his tasting notes. Give us a little quick rundown of uh, how you're, you had the Blantons, right, Jordan? Oh yeah, Blanton's and uh, Weller Antique right now are my two, I'd say my two favorite go-to bourbons. And uh, it, you just can't, you can't have a bad bottle of either. They're they're so good. Nice. I'm not going to get into the yeah. tasting notes or anything, but uh, it's, it's a beautiful thing. Yeah, nice. Cheers. We will link to some tasting notes in the show notes. Yeah, well, before we wrap up here, Jordan, why don't you give a shout out to yourself and your blog and where the listeners can find you on uh, different social media platforms? Yeah, uh, Money Monster. My last name's Moz. I know it's kind of kind of lame, but uh, uh, <laughs> people people started people were calling me Demoster basically since I was like twelve years old. So it stuck, and uh, that's that's what I did. I actually just started the blog as a kind of a. I, I got bored of uh, posting long arguments with, uh, and debates with people on Facebook. And I thought, you know what, I'm going <laughs> to start a blog and so I can put my thoughts down in a little more detail. Um, that's kind of how it started. And then uh, obviously whiskey and, and investing is, uh, are my two passions. So it kind of morphed into that. And uh, you can also find me on Twitter at Demonster, two A's like the master. Um, and it's pretty much all about dividend investing, cocktails and bourbon. Great account to follow. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. It's been fun. Yeah. Thanks for coming by. I appreciate you coming on. Yeah. Well, there you go. Thanks again to Jordan Mass for coming on the show. And we will catch you next time on the FI Garage.